0: Heavenly Father, Lord, has a song that we just sung said, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, we truly mean that from our hearts. Father, we know that the root of the evils in our society, including our country, go back to the fact that Christ is not ruling in the hearts of people. And Lord, we pray for our country this morning that, Lord, truly more and more people would be able to sing that song, that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Pray that you would use us for that great reality. Pray for the different possibilities of legislation and different things going on in our country. Father, we pray that your people would lovingly speak up about these things, that you would use those who are in government, who are Christians, who are followers of Christ, to lovingly um, speak into these issues, and that you would use us, Father, And whatever means, (coughs) excuse me, vehicles that are godly vehicles (coughs) so that we would speak into these issues, Father. (coughs) We pray, Father God, for those who are hurting in our body this morning. We pray for those who have lost loved ones just this week. Father, for your comfort and your encouragement upon them. We pray for those who are hurting physically, Lord, those who are in the hospital we pray that you would comfort them with your presence as well as with the brethren who will reach out to them and pray for them and come alongside of them and their family members we continue to pray for those who lord are ill amongst us even sitting in here right now who are in pain father thank you for their faithfulness to you and come in coming and that spiritual truth is more important to them even more important than their physical pain may you strengthen them may you cause them to endure and abound in doing the mission of Christ here on this earth. Father, we pray even now that you would remove distractions from our minds, that you would help us to be people who focus upon your word. May we remember that when we open up the Bible, we open the scriptures of the living God. Help us to be people who are attentive and eager listeners and who are, Lord, zealous for good works, zealous to go out and applying these truths to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 19. If you remember um, last week, we said we would finish this particular passage this week. And so this is the second part of last week's message. The Master's plan for fulfilling His mission. Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 19. This is the Word of God. And He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted, and they came to Him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. J.C. Ryle, English pastor of the 19th century, wrote this about this particular passage and the Lord's choosing of His twelve apostles. "Quote: The beginning of this passage describes the appointment of the twelve apostles. It's an event in the Lord in our Lord's earthly ministry which should always be read with deep interest." What a vast amount of benefit these few men have conferred on the world. The names of a few Jewish fishermen are known and loved by many all over the globe, while the names of many kings and rich men are lost and forgotten. People who do good to souls are the ones who are remembered forever. I like that. People who do good to souls are the ones who are remembered forever. That's true, beloved, for the apostles and any leaders, obviously, but that's true for any Christian who invests himself and herself into the kingdom of God by doing good to souls. They will be remembered forever. And that's what we've been seeing that our Lord Jesus Christ has been doing in the gospel of Mark, haven't we? That he's been, he came to do good to souls. Mark has presented this great Jesus Christ who has shown us the fact that he came to do good and to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons and to relieve hunger and poverty and those things. He came to do spiritual and physical good. He had the power over those things. He had this power over the spiritual realm. He had power over life and death. We're going to see later on that he had power over the natural order. Jesus came and did a lot of good But the greatest thing and the greatest good that Jesus did, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, is that He came and preached the Gospel concerning His coming Kingdom. Because all of those things, those visible things, all of that suffering, ultimately went back to the root problem in people's lives. And that is the fact that they need, above anything, forgiveness for their sins. They need to be delivered from spiritual darkness. That was the people's greatest need then, and that is the greatest need that we have today in the church, or in this world, rather, that people find forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark is that as Jesus ministers, and even though he's doing good to people like this, there are people who who are opposed to him, people who are very hostile to him, the religious leaders in particular. In fact, if you go back with me to chapter 2 again, Notice how many times, in the form of a question, these religious leaders are opposing Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 7, after Jesus had been, had been um, claiming that he can forgive the sins of, of anyone because he is God. Chapter 2, verse 7, they ask, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then look at chapter 2 and verse 16. This is after calling Matthew the tax collector and Matthew throws an evangelistic um, feast at his house and the religious leaders are scratching their heads wondering why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners in verse 16. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? Over and over again, they are opposing Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. The Pharisees concerning questions of the Sabbath were saying to Jesus, Look, why are they, your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Each and every time, Mark is making a point. There was such hostility and opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was doing such good to people. And then, of course, it all culminates in chapter 3 and verse 6, right? The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. They began to plot together, locking arms even with their their arch enemies in order to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately try to find something, some kind of ground um, so that they can put Him to death. This is the level of their hatred. Now Jesus is not taken off guard by any of this, is He? He's not surprised. He's not taken off guard. The master, beloved, always had a plan to fulfill his mission. And we began to see that in chapter 3, verses 3 through 19 last week. We saw, first of all, last week, the master's dependence. The master's dependence that on the heels of of intense hostility and demands, our Lord retreats, as he often did. But this time in particular, he spends all night in prayer, according to Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 12, he spends all night in prayer because he's going to choose his 12 apostles. This newly formed, unique group of men who are going to be the pioneers for the church. This is a huge decision. And so Jesus retreats and spends all night in prayer with his heavenly father. He was a God dependent man, even though God in human flesh, he was also man. And what we learned is that we too, as we fulfill our mission here on this earth, yes, Jesus uniquely, with regards to his choosing of his 12 apostles, he was God-dependent, but we in everything that we do on this earth, beloved, the battle is a spiritual warfare issue here on this earth. The battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. It's against spiritual forces of wickedness. Thus, we need to fight with spiritual armor, right? And at the, on the forefront of that is prayer. We must be God-dependent people as we fulfill our mission here on this earth. We saw, secondly, that creating this group of men was the master's strategy. Not only was the master dependent, but we saw his, his strategy, the master's strategy for reaching the masses. We saw that Jesus' plan all along was to focus on a few faithful men to reach the masses. This is how it all began. And there were three aspects of his strategy. First, Jesus called these men to a commitment. They were already following him, but they were now to make a break from the the uncommitted multitudes, the uncommitted masses, and now they were to be identified with Jesus and be partners with him in his grand enterprise of the gospel of the kingdom and preach the gospel. Secondly, Jesus would invest into them very deliberately. He called them and he invested himself into them very deliberately. They were to watch him and be with him and learn from him. Even in the most difficult of times, they were to learn from their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, Jesus would give them a task or a mission to fulfill. Following his example, the Lord's example, they were to go out and preach the gospel and cast out the demons. And even though, beloved, we are not apostles, as I said last week with a capital A, these are very unique individuals that the Lord called at this time. And later on, Matthias in Acts chapter 1, and obviously uniquely Saul and then Paul in Acts chapter 9 and the chapters that follow that. Even though we are not apostles, this is really the pattern that Jesus set forth for us, right? Where we have been called. We have been invested into through the word of God, through other people, and beloved, we have been sent out to do the same thing. Our mission is to exalt Jesus Christ by making other disciples, other followers of Christ. Amen? That is our mission. That's what we see here. Well, now in verses 16 through 19, we see, thirdly, the master's team. The master's team. We see the fleshing out of the Lord's strategy into choosing His team, His 12 apostles. And the approach that I want to take this morning is not so much looking at each individual exhaustively and in detail here. Instead, what I want to do is is look at the overall makeup of this uniquely chosen group of men. And what I want to do is is highlight some characteristics that we glean from this group as a collective group that I think will be a great encouragement to us individually And for us collectively as well. And I think this is important. Because you see, oftentimes I think we forget that God, beloved, doesn't call special people. Do you understand that? God doesn't call elite followers who are better than other people in this world. God doesn't look down, if you will, down the corridors of time and chooses those who are deemed worthy of his call. He doesn't do that. He chooses sinners who are undeserving of his grace. Well, that's the case for us in our conversion. We're not worthy to be saved. We're not worthy for Christ to have died for us. But that's also the case as believers for any area of service that we're called to flesh out in our lives. None of us are special individuals. It's all by grace, isn't it? And so as we look at these individuals, even as a collective group, I think we're going to be encouraged and be reminded of God's amazing grace in their lives as well as in the lives of each and every one of us who have been called to follow Jesus Christ. So notice some characteristics about the master's team here for our mutual encouragement. I want you to notice first that Jesus chose a team of common men. Common men, ordinary individuals. At least five, maybe even as close to seven, as much as seven individuals here in these verses, were fishermen. We've already met, if you look back in chapter 1, in verse 16, two sets of these guys. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And notice verse 18, "...immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets." These individuals were fishermen, along potentially as well with, uh, with Philip, who, according to um, John, chapter 21 and verse 2, is most likely one of those individuals who, was, who went back to fishing after Jesus was crucified. Philip as well was most likely a fisherman. And then these two sets of brothers. And if you remember when we looked at chapter 1 of Mark, we talked about the the, the fact that fishing was a very humble vocation. One that required much patience, much alertness, much persistence, much skill. These guys were hard-working individuals, but these guys were not the cream of the crop or men deemed worthy of such a call, even from a societal standpoint. They were what we might call hard-working blue-collar men. And if you think about this with me, I mean, I would imagine that if Jesus really wanted to impress the society around him, maybe he would have um, chose a different team of men that didn't include fishermen. Maybe he would have chosen the the cream of the crop, the scholars, the the intellectuals, maybe some of the religious leaders so that they could influence the the, uh, Judaism of the day. Maybe Jesus would have chosen the great success stories so that He would become even more popular. Yet That's not what our Lord Jesus did. That is not the way of His kingdom. In fact, think about our Savior. How did He, the eternal Son of God, the image of the invisible God, how did He come to earth, clothed and wrapped in humanity, becoming weak, laying aside the independent use of His divine attributes in order to become like one of us. You see, the way of the kingdom was not, was not through, through pomp and um, choosing the great intellectuals and the great success stories. Jesus modeled humility from the very beginning, beloved, and He set the pattern for those who would be called leaders in His church. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. He's addressing dissension there in that chapter, because there were people who were who were exalting one man above another, even Jesus was one of the options that people could could um uh, uh follow and Paul says this in first corinthians one twenty six for consider your calling brethren that there are there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man or flesh may boast before God. And then he goes on to say later on, but by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, stop exalting people. Look around, brethren. None of us, according to the flesh, are wise. We're all foolish people brought to Christ by a very foolish message from the eyes of the world. A very simple message about one who went to the cross and died for people on the cross and paid their punishment. Look around. All of us have come in the same way. God calls ordinary people, equips them and uses them so that it's not about the person, the individual, but about the power of Christ working in and through each and every one of us. Amen? That's what, that's what it's about. Now, does this mean that God doesn't call smart people from a human perspective or doctors or scholars or well-learned individuals and all of that? We have many examples of brethren in our history, even currently, who are Christians, who are very intelligent individuals. But what this means is that none of those things have any bearing on God's calling of people. None of those things make a person worthy of God's call. It's all by grace through faith in Christ alone, the merits of Jesus on the cross, right? That's what it's about. God doesn't look down the corridors of time and say to himself, gee, I need to choose that smart person right there. Gee, that person right there who went to the university and got two or three degrees, I have to use them. They have to be an instrument. I need them. God doesn't do that. God doesn't just look for knowledgeable people, doctors and lawyers and all of that because he needs any of us. Beloved, he doesn't need any of us, any of us. I often scratch my head what in the world I'm doing behind this pulpit. Every single Sunday morning I feel like that. I'm sure you feel the same way as you serve Christ. Lord, why have you called me to do this? Wow! Right? None of us are deserving of His his call. Each of us are desperately broken with nothing to boast before God. And yet God in His infinite wisdom has used a simple message, beloved, to transform us more and more into the image of His Son, and call us to serve Him. What a great, great privilege, right? That we are common, ordinary people, and yet Jesus has done a great, great work in our lives. Many of these individuals, or all of these individuals, were just common individuals like that. Listen, in light of this, I would propose to us that we need to grow in humility. Personally, and all of us as believers. All of us need to grow in humility It should be, beloved, that the more that you and I walk with God, the more that the years pass and you are humbly walking before the Lord, the more aware you should be of your sin and your utter unworthiness and the more reliant upon the grace of Christ for your service. That's the way it should be. That that should be normal. I love this little index card that someone in this body gave me about the apostle Paul. I don't know if it was he got it from somebody else, but I love this. In AD 55, 23 years after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. AD 55, Paul says this concerning himself in 1 Corinthians 15:9. He refers to himself as the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God calls himself the least of the apostles. Then five years later, listen to this. In A.D. 60, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, he refers to himself as the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And then in A.D. 64... Four years after Ephesians 3, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is what Paul says about himself. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost, or chief of all. And I love that construction there, when he translates, among whom I am foremost of all. The idea there is, I myself am first of all. I myself am first of all. Of what? Sinners. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than me, says the Apostle Paul. Beloved, the more that the years passed, the more that Paul walked with God, the more knowledgeable he became, the more accomplishments, the more humble and broken that man was before the Lord, and all the more reliant upon the grace of Christ. He was just a man, just like you and I. Just like you and I. Oftentimes, however, for many Christians, it's exactly the opposite seems like the more that we walk with God, the more knowledge we accumulate, the more accomplishments that we have fleshed out, the more things that the Lord has used us to do, the more proud and the more arrogant we become, rather than more humble. It should be the opposite shouldn 't it? Paul viewed himself as a common, ordinary, broken man whom God had granted the privilege of serving. Jesus Christ, and the more accomplishments, and the more church plants, and the more evangel- ev- ev- people that he led to the Lord, the more humble this man became, and the more he realized that he was an unworthy sinner who needed to rely upon the grace of Christ. That's the way that it should be for us, beloved. That's what these men became. Ordinary common men who did extraordinary things for God. Just read in the book of Acts, preaching and save, being used by God so that He saved people through these individuals and church planting and shepherding of people and mighty works God did through these, ex, through these ordinary individuals who only humbled themselves more and more before the Lord. Secondly, notice that Jesus chose a team not only of common men, but also diverse men diverse men listen these weren't cookie cut individuals who fit one particular mold they were all different i mean we've already seen at least five fishermen right philip and simon peter and andrew and james and john the sons of thunder all of these guys were different and then of course we can talk about the rejected tax collector matthew that we already saw a few weeks ago who was who was considered a traitor and a thief by his fellow countrymen Remember how back in chapter, um, <clears throat> recently in the, in the previous chapter, Jesus got into conflict with the religious leaders because these religious leaders were scratching their heads wondering what Jesus was doing, hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners and tax collectors. They put tax collectors in the same category as the, the heathen of the day, as the worst of sinners. These guys were the scum of the earth. Considered that way by their Jewish countrymen, they were outcasts. They were loathsome individuals because they bought the franchises from the Roman government and collected taxes for Rome. And in the process also pilfered the, a certain percentage of, of, the, of the taxes collected from their own Jewish countrymen. I mean, these individuals were, were bad dudes, dishonest dudes. And there was Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, who was completely the opposite of Matthew the tax collector, he was a Jewish radical who absolutely abhorred and hated the Roman government, Simon the Zealot. These guys were known for carrying around daggers under their garments and attacking and assassinating Roman soldiers and Roman personnel. They wanted to see the, the Israel come back to prominence. They would run around blowing up things, these zealots. Simon was one of those guys. I mean, I'm just amazed that Jesus chose this man who was zealous for Jewish nationalism. And you know what Jesus did? He redeemed him, and Jesus tempered and tethered and redirected the zeal of this man, Simon the Zealot, to be zealous for the kingdom of Christ, right? That's what the Lord did with Simon. You know, zeal is good, but needs to be tempered and tethered and and directed, right? That's what Christ did with this man. I recall, speaking of zeal, I recall a Christian buddy of mine one time that we went to a UCLA game. And we're standing there cheering for our team who was w- winning. I know that that's kind of hard for us to imagine how UCLA can actually win a game these days, but they were winning. But there was this group of, of guys in front of us who were just, um, they had music, all kinds of filthy, profane music playing the whole game. They were just cussing. They were talking about women in very condescending kinds of ways. And I remember one of my buddies finally says to one of these guys, he says, hey, Please lower your filthy music, would you? We're trying to watch the game. We're trying to enjoy a game. And would you believe that the guys actually turned off the music and they stopped speaking that way? Of course, it helped that the, my friend was 6'7", seven, <laughs> no, 250, 60 pounds, right? We used to call him the, the Jolly Green Giant. The guy was zealous for Christ, zealous for Christ. He was so angry that these guys would speak that way. I remember another friend of mine who was at a restaurant once with his with his young wife. They were newly meds, And he told me of of a story where his wife and him were sitting at this table at this restaurant. And there was this other table where there were three guys sitting there. And they were cussing, F-bombs, every other word and all of that, talking about women unashamedly in a very condescending way. And finally, he, he says that he stopped and he looked over and he says, Hey, there's a lady here. Now knock it off. And the guys actually stopped doing it. Now listen, I'm not proposing that any of you do that, okay? Maybe you've had bad experiences. But you know, the Lord, the Lord wants us to be zealous for his name, right? He wants us to do that. Zeal is good, but it needs to be tempered and directed the right way. And that's what Jesus did for Simon the zealot. That's what he did. But my point is that each of these men were all diverse. They were all different, beloved. Different occupations, different backgrounds, different experiences, different political stances. In fact, listen, speaking of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector, before Jesus, some of these guys would have never been caught dead around one another. In fact, one of them would have been dead if they were around one another. I mean, can you imagine Simon the Zealot, Jewish radical, anti-Rome, hanging around Matthew the Tax Collector who worked for the Roman government of all people? I mean, Matthew would have been done at that moment. Matthew wouldn't have lasted very long Some of these guys wouldn't have been caught dead around one another being so different. What happened? What happened? They had a collision with Jesus, didn't they? They were converted. They were born again. Things changed, beloved. And now they were brothers in Christ. Partners in the gospel. They were now team members who championed one cause above any other cause. And that was the cause of the kingdom of Christ. Listen, their identity was no longer wrapped up in their ethnicity, in their prior occupation, in their political stances, in their background, etc. It was wrapped up in who they were in Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel does, beloved. This is what the gospel does. Our lives are completely transformed, completely reoriented, so that now it is no longer about allowing our unique differences to separate us if we are believers, but now we herald our identity in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what it's about. The gospel does miracles like that. I mean, some of us in this room wouldn't have been caught dead together right before. Think about that, how different we are. I mean, do you guys know, by the way? Maybe some of you guys don't know this. Most of you probably do that. We actually have two pastors on staff here at Calvary Bible church. One who is a USC grad (laughs) ready for this. Guess who the other is. He is a UCLA grad. I mean, those guys have even gone to, you know, indirectly in the pulpit and thrown, uh, you know, uh, thrown jabs at each other and all of that. These guys love each other. See, God does miracles. (laughs) Even USC, UCLA guys, right, Jim? The Lord can bring us all together. This is what I want to remind us of this morning. I want to remind us, beloved, that this is true for us, that it doesn't matter what your upbringing and background is. It doesn't matter at the end of the day what your current occupation is. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't even matter what your type of personality or wiring, if you want to put it that way, is. If you are a Christian, then who you are in Christ trumps all of those differences. No pun intended, by the way. (laughs) Who you are in Christ is what matters. We are one in Christ. You know what we do with our differences as Christians? The wholesome differences that we have, obviously? We celebrate those differences, don't we? We celebrate those differences. And we leverage them towards the accomplishment of one common goal, and that is to exalt Christ by making disciples who know, love, and serve Him. Right? Colossians 3.11 says this, There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. Listen to this, But Christ is all and in all. That's a way of saying Christ is exalted above all, and He is in all, meaning all believers in that context. Right? He rules in the hearts of individuals. And Paul was not saying there that there aren't differences amongst Christians even, right? That we are all clones and identical, but that all of those differences are subordinate to our identity in Christ Jesus. And we better not ever allow any of those differences, beloved, to separate us, to cause us, uni- cause us unity in our church. It says direct application too for how we relate to one another in our service in the church, doesn't it? We need to remember that each and every one of us are individual members of one body. Like Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 says. Each and every one of us, we're one body collectively, but we're also individual members of one another. And each of us has something to contribute for the edification, the building up of this body. You need to remember that. No one stands on higher ground. There are no categories of better or more elite servants in Christ's church. Every single one of us matter to the Lord. Every single one of us are called to be using our spiritual gifts and abilities and experiences and material resources for the edification and the building up of this body. The body, beloved, will never be everything that God has called it to be until you and I are are functioning spirit-empowered, seeking to use our spiritual gifts for the edification of this body. And so some of you need to get off the bench, if you will. Stop looking at the things that you, uh, your differences and comparing yourself to other people and, and oh, I'm not worthy because of my past and the things that I've done. Listen to me, God, by his grace, can empower you to be a person who uses your spiritual gifts for the building up of this body, for the, edif- for the exaltation of Christ. Amen. None of us do, can do this on our own strength. It's all about him. It's all about him. So please note here, with all of their unique differences, Jesus chose to use each of these men. He formed a team of ordinary, common individuals who were very diverse. Very different, but he used them. Thirdly, Jesus chose a team of flawed men. Flawed men. Common, diverse, flawed. We all know of Peter, who has affectionately been called by some, the the foot-shaped mouth disciple. Think about it always sticking his foot in his mouth, always speaking out of turn. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 30 and following, you remember Jesus was walking on the water and Peter is the one who speaks up. He wants to come to Jesus. Jesus summons him to come to him. He initially starts walking on the water, heading towards Jesus. And what does Peter begin to do? Doubt the Lord. I would have been the same way, by the way. He begins to doubt the Lord. He begins to sink. And Jesus says to him, you of little faith, right? You have little faith. Why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt me? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, after making the great confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to go to the cross and die for, their, for the sins of people. Peter has the audacity in Matthew 16 to actually rebuke Jesus. He rebukes our Lord. And the Lord actually returns the favor, right? Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your... Eyes on God's interest, but man's. And then in John chapter 18 and verse 10, when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what Peter does in the Garden of Gethsemane? He pulls out his sword and he chops off the ear of one of the soldiers there, right? One of the servants. Loses sight in in the light of the fact that Jesus had already told him that he was going to go to the cross. In Mark chapter 14, after swearing undying allegiance to Jesus, saying, I will never deny you, Lord, no matter what happens, essentially, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. He abandons our Lord. This was the flawed Peter. Flawed Peter, even after his conversion. He was already a believer through these circumstances, different situations. And yet, even so, beloved... In John chapter 21, after rising from the dead, Jesus entrusted his flock to this man. And what did he say? Shepherd my flock. Shepherd my flock. Even though he was a flawed individual, he still used Peter. Then there's doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? Who in John chapter 20, he doesn't believe the other individuals that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead until he sees Jesus for himself. He finally does, and he makes the ultimate confession, my Lord and my God. John chapter 20, verse 28. But he didn't believe, he had to see everything physically, visibly. And you've got to use Thomas as one of his apostles. And there's the infamous sons of thunder in verse 17 James and John, who were brothers. Jesus gave them this title primarily because of their spit-fiery personalities and maybe as a reminder to them that they needed to to temper that fire, right, for the right things, for the kingdom of Christ. Do you remember these guys? In Luke chapter 9, the people of the land, the Samaritans, weren't receiving Jesus, it says in Luke 9. And remember these guys, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Can you imagine Jesus? Uh Sure, guys. Why don't you burn them by fire? That'll work. That'll advance our cause, right? On another occasion, in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, they want prominence, so they even get their mom involved, according to a parallel passage, and they come and they, they ask Jesus proudly, Lord, we want to sit one on your right and one on your left. We want to sit in the place of prominence. And Jesus went on to talk to them about true greatness that those who are last shall be first. Those who serve are the ones that honor the Lord and are pleasing to Him. Listen, each of these men were flawed. They were flawed. They were imperfect. And even after following the Lord, these men were, were constantly sticking their foot in their mouths as each and every one of us does as well. Yet yeah, Jesus worked through them. He used them. And you say, are you downplaying their sin and their weaknesses? No. Not downplaying any sin. No, Every sin is serious. Every imperfection is serious before the Lord. Every weakness, God wants to, to, to grow us in that weakness, beloved. Sin is always serious and we must continually be growing in grace in every area of our life. But I think oftentimes we forget about the fact and we think that God will never use us if we have a particular weakness or vulnerability or if we have fallen on our face in the past into some kind of, of pattern of sin. That God will never forgive us. He will never use us. He will never allow us to serve him. And that is, couldn't be farthest from the truth. Couldn't be farthest from the truth. You must always remember that God's grace is greater than our sin, greater than our weaknesses, right? I've been reading with a group of brothers in a, one of our intensive men's training classes through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just reading through that, and I've been reminded as, as they have of how many individuals in the Old Testament and really all of scripture were flawed individuals. Just imperfect. I mean, think of Adam and Eve questioning the goodness of God and putting themselves in the, in the place of worship so that they disobeyed and mistrusted the Lord and they sin in the garden and yet God clothes them graciously with coverings, promises them in Genesis 3.15 as he's cursing the, the serpent that there's going to be one who's going to be the ultimate deliverer. God is so gracious, even in the midst of their sin. Noah, who God preserved with his family through this ark, gets drunk and is defiled by one of his sons, and yet God is gracious to this man and gives him descendant after descendant after descendant. Then Abraham who lies about Sarah, his wife, at one point in time, not trusting in God's protection, who doubted God that God would give him a son of promise, and yet God is so good to him, he blesses Abraham and he gives him the child of promise, even though Abraham had, had doubted the Lord. And, and what about Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, the liars, the usurpers, the manipulators, yet God channeled the promises through Jacob and his offspring because of his grace, not because Jacob did everything the way that he needed to do it, Think about that. And on and on goes the list. Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, who is an immoral man, a womanizer. And yet God promises that it's from this tribe of Judah that the Messiah will ultimately come. Was it because Judah was better than his other brothers? Absolutely not. It's because God is gracious despite our sin, beloved. Always gracious. And what about Moses? The fearful, timid man, excuse maker who had an inferiority complex, right? I can't do this. What am I going to say? I'm not skilled of speech. And what does God do? Instead of choosing somebody else, God uses this man, even helps him through Aaron becoming his mouthpiece initially. What's the point? What's the point in all of this? That God uses flawed, imperfect people, beloved. He does indeed. For his kingdom. In none of these cases am I trying to minimize or diminish or downplay anyone's sin. And we know even from scripture that those people who sin every time somebody sin in some way, shape, or form, there were consequences for their sin. I'm simply making the point that the Bible is making that even though people are horrible and sin is hideous and we do not deserve to be used by Christ, God is greater. God is greater than our sin. The point is to accentuate God's goodness and grace that despite us being great sinners, God is a greater Savior. A greater Savior. It's believed that years after writing the song Amazing Grace, one of our favorites here, while on his deathbed, John Newton told one of his friends this, My memory is now nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner And that Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that something that we would share? A sentiment that we would share each of us? Every single day, I'm reminded of my sin, beloved. Motives, intentions, actions, unkind words, wrong purposes, misdirected priorities. Can you say amen to that? Every single day. And yet every single day I return to the cross of Jesus Christ and I'm reminded of the fact that God has already crushed His own Son for my sin so that I stand upon the shoulders of Christ's victory. And rather than that driving me all the more to that sin would increase, it should be that grace is what we are dependent upon to become more and more like Jesus, right? That's what that should cause us to do. Listen, there's hope for you if you are not a Christian this morning. light of this grace that no matter how great your sin might be no matter what you've done in your life do you understand that the grace of christ offered to you on the cross is greater than your sin jesus lived a perfect life the life that you could never live jesus died in the place of sinners taking upon the punishment that we deserve for our sins but he rose from the dead victorious conquering sin and death on the third day didn't he And by believing in Him, you can be forgiven of your sins, no matter what you've done. You can be reconciled to your Maker. You can be delivered and rescued from the coming judgment of God. Someone on that day when you stand before God is going to have to pay for your sins. The issue is going to be, is it going to be you and you are inadequate to do it? Or have you trusted in Jesus who already did it for you on the cross? There's hope for us if we're Christians. We're well aware of our weaknesses and our sins and our brokenness. Beloved, listen, God uses us despite our weaknesses. The same gospel applies to us. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died in your place, Christian, fully paid for your sins on the cross. He's risen from the dead, conquering sin and death. You and I stand upon the shoulders of that great victory so that we live victorious in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God for the glory of Jesus Christ, right? Right? You and I can't add or subtract anything from that great work as Christians. Your performance means nothing, only the merits of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So by His grace, for some of you who are believers this morning, get up from the dumps of self-pity. Get up from the dumps of feeling like you can't serve Christ because you have weaknesses, because you've blown it in a particular area of life. Listen, confess your sin to the Lord Be reminded of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and become accountable to others so that others will come alongside of you and help you stand so that you serve Christ victoriously. Amen? That's what we need to be about. I love how Paul contemplating his weakness quotes the Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. My grace, Jesus said to Paul, is sufficient for you. It's all you need. For power is perfected in weakness. Then says Paul, most gladly therefore says Paul, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that glorious? We often think that if we feel weak or vulnerable, that this is always a bad thing. No, beloved. No. If you feel weak and you're aware of your weaknesses and your utter sinfulness and you confess those to God and are reminded of how He forgives you in Jesus Christ on the cross, then we are most effective when we feel a sense of weakness and we run to Christ for strength to serve Him, right? You feel weak this morning as a as a husband or as a wife? Run to Christ. You feel weak or, or or inadequate as a as a child of your parents? Run to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You feel inadequate or weak as a brother or sister in Christ because you see all of your weaknesses and frailties and you don't know how God could possibly use you in this church? Run to Christ. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is perfected in your weakness. You feel inadequate in your job environment? Lord, I don't even know what I'm doing here. This is a pagan environment, godless. Listen, you are a light in in that environment. Run to Jesus who's going to empower you to be all the more a witness for his name in that environment. He has you there for a purpose. That is your mission field and you need his grace to fulfill that mission in that place. Run to Christ so that he gets the glory despite our sins and weaknesses. Amen. Our hearts ought to humbly beat like John Newton's heart who said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. See, people who understand that they're flawed believers come continually before the Lord for the the endless measure of His grace. That's what we need to do, beloved. Beloved. Finally, Jesus chose a team of common, diverse, flawed men. But notice also, lastly, a group of saved men. Saved men. Christ took a bunch of these flawed individuals. And you know what he did? He began a process of change in them. They came to Jesus as they were with their sins and their weaknesses and vulnerabilities, beloved. And he began a process of change in their lives. We often think if you're not, if we're non-Christians, that we have to fix ourselves so that we can come to Jesus so that he will save us, right? We don't change ourselves so that we can come to Christ. Rather, we come to Christ as we are broken over our sin so that he might begin the process of change in us, right? That's what Jesus did with his disciples, set them apart for himself from the very beginning. They began to follow him. They believed in him at a very basic level. And yes, the call to apostleship was an even greater level of leadership. But he began a process in saving these individuals to conform them into the image of his son. That's what salvation is. And I mentioned this issue of salvation, beloved. And we end here because this is where we must heed the lesson of one Judas Iscariot, right? One Judas Iscariot. The one, if you survey the Gospels, always mentioned last, always highlighted as a traitor who betrayed the Lord Jesus for money. This guy is a warning to us, isn't he? Judas Iscariot is a warning to each and every one of us. Listen, Jesus, uh, Judas was around Jesus, heard his wisdom, heard his knowledge, watched him, spent time very closely with Jesus, heard very intimate conversations, some of which potentially are not recorded for us. He watched Jesus in trial and difficulties. He saw Jesus' great power. He, he saw Jesus' compassion for the multitudes and his healing and his preaching of the gospel. He even experienced the kindness of Christ toward him. And yet, he did not... Believe in Him from the heart. Judas' heart was far from Christ. He was a phony. He was a thief. He used to pilfer money from the money box, which was meant to give to the poor. Listen, my friend, if you're sitting in here this morning and you're not a believer, Judas is a warning to you and I that you can be so close So close to the truth they judas was so close to the truth that he the very personified truth The son of god was before him and yet he did not believe in jesus You could be so close and yet so far away in your heart, right? Your heart doesn't belong to him He's a reminder to you and I that we must make certain that we are born again That we are born again So I want to ask you today. Are you born again? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Not your works, not what you have, not your occupation, not your family, none of those things. Are you trusting in Jesus alone, in His merits, as the only sufficient sacrifice, the only one who's gone to the cross to pay for your sins? Have you been born again? If any of us could go back to that time, wouldn't that be the message having read the biblical account if we can be dropped parachuted into the gospels again before the crucifixion of Christ wouldn't that be the one thing you would want to say to Judas Judas you're not born again you need to believe in Jesus it doesn't matter how much physically you're around you need to put your trust in him that you might be saved and rescued from God's coming judgment wouldn't that be something you would want to tell them And so I say to you this morning it doesn't matter how much you come to church physically It doesn't matter how many years you've been here at the church, how many things you've done for service. If your heart doesn't belong to Christ, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must trust in Jesus alone, not your works. Not your physical attendance. Not your parents, youth and kids. Not any other family member. You must be born again. Have you been rescued from God's judgment? Do you love Christ? Say, well, how do I know? Do you love Christ? Do you love Him? Say, so, well, sometimes it's hard because I, I feel my affections are wayward and I struggle with the world. Yes, but do you love Christ as a pattern? Ultimately, are you committed to, to loving obedience, even though you fail? And even though oftentimes you just, you just hate your sin and you can't stand the fact that you did it again. Listen, that is a fruit of genuine repentance when you hate your sin. When we are converted and we're born again, not only does our relationship with God change and now we're reconciled so that He's our Heavenly Father, but our relationship beloved to the world changes and to our sin where now we hate the world and we hate our sin and we don't want to sin against our Heavenly Father and hurt Him and grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Have you been born again? Do you love Christ? Are you walking in loving obedience? Doesn't matter how long you've been around, have you become more and more holy? More and more like Jesus? But I'm still really imperfect. I'm not asking you that. We're all imperfect. Didn't we just learn that? But have you become more and more like Christ? Have you grown in your love for him and your desire to serve him and your hatred towards sin? Beloved, the lesson of Judas Iscariot is don't be a phony. Don't be a phony. Have a heart for Christ. Come to Christ. Be born again. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. These men were saved men with the exception of Judas Iscariot. Saved men. Oh, well, may the Lord allow us to fulfill our mission of making disciples. Amen? May he do that. You see, are the master's dependents? We must be dependent, beloved, as we fulfill our mission. We saw that he implemented a strategy to reproduce himself into a few, to reach the masses. That is the pattern for us. We must be investing ourselves into others, sharing the gospel with the non-believers around us, and edifying, building up our brethren with our spiritual gifts, material resources, experiences. We must be uh, strategically investing ourselves into others, as Christ did. And we saw that he formed his team. Ordinary, diverse, flawed, but save men. And yet, God worked mightily through those individuals, and He will continue to work in and through us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the wonderful reminder of the great Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was dependent upon you during His humanity, who now sits at your right hand interceding for our sins, who was strategic. And that he invested himself into a few faithful men who were the pioneers of your church. And we are the the legacy of these individuals right now, Lord. We are the legacy, ultimately, of Christ. That's why all of life is about exalting his name. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to invest ourselves into one another. Help us to share the gospel. Help us to to trust that you are going to be faithful to, to those who preach the message of good news of your son. Draw people to yourself through this church, Lord, individually and collectively through Calvary Bible Church. And Father, help us to be individuals who recognize the grace of Christ working in and through us, that we are ordinary, flawed, imperfect people, and yet your grace mightily works through us. Help us to be dependent upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible, copyright by the Lockman Foundation.